Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that ONN's office is located in unceded territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. We know that uh, Toronto is diverse to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis communities, documented and undocumented. And for all of your listener, all of the listeners, those of you who identify as settlers, um, there's a really great resource called nativeland.ca. That's N-A-T-I-V-E dash land, L-A-N-D dot C-A, uh, where you can find out whose land that you're on and um, not only for the purposes of acknowledging, but building relationships and practices of solidarity. So make sure to check that resource out. Welcome to Digging In with ONN. We're your hosts, Kavita and Yemi. Digging In with ONN is a podcast that focuses on public policy as well as systems change that impact Ontario's nonprofit sector. With a focus on decent work using an intersectional lens that centers learning around racial justice, equity practices, as well as truth and reconciliation. For today's episode, we will be speaking to Paul Taylor, the Executive Director at FoodShare, who will be joining us to talk about pay transparency, accountability, as well as change. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. We're so excited to have you. Can you take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, I'm, I'm, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here, and I think this is an important conversation. So again, thank you for having me. Um, I'm Paul Taylor. I'm the executive director of an organization called Foodshare Toronto. Um, and Foodshare is, you know, actually where I like to start, I think is really important when I talk about Foodshare and Foodshare's work. Everyone asks if we're a food bank. Um, so I just like to clarify that we're not a food bank. And actually we begin our work with recognizing that everybody in this country has a right to food. And one of the things I've begun to realize is, you, you know, that that right to food doesn't extend to everyone. You know, you just go to a farmer's market and you can see to whom the right to food has been extended. And it certainly isn't everyone. So that underpins much of our work. Um, in, in thinking about food insecurity and how we ultimately work with community leaders and local organizations that are also as concerned as we are about access to affordable produce in communities across the city. And we work with those communities and those leaders to build community-led food infrastructure. So we're working with folks in community to build produce markets. Um, there are, we call them good food markets. There are about 50 across the city of Toronto. And then doing things like converting school fields and hydro corridors into urban farms, really building infrastructure, like I say, in, in communities that I think have had to face chronic underinvestment. Fair income, living wages are key components of decent working conditions for employees within the nonprofit sector. What are the connections between pay equity, pay transparency, and can you bridge the connections to that around racial justice? Okay, I'll try my best. So, you know, the connections between pay equity and pay transparency, they really work together. Um, because pay equity, of course, the principle, the idea that people should be paid um, equal pay for equal work. But if there isn't transparency around what folks are, are, are being paid, how can folks within those organizations really challenge their, their organizations to be better? And I think that's, 
that's such a big part of the problem is that companies and, and nonprofits as well will often encourage this kind of culture of privacy, real quietness, don't ask about how much someone gets paid, you know, and I think that is one of the things that gets in the way of, of um, kind of the benefits of pay equity and pay transparency working together. Um, the other thing that I think, and, and actually it's really important to, um, to acknowledge that, um, you know, one of the things that we do at, at Foodshare that we found really helpful in terms of prioritizing, you know, racial equity is, and, and gender equity, is actually we don't negotiate. Um, so when someone, and that's one of the ways we kind of right off the bat embed equal pay for equal work, and that's sometimes hard for folks to wrap their minds around. But we've committed to saying, you know, we're not going to pay somebody more money because society has taught them that they they um, have taught them how to negotiate and that one they should negotiate, and they have a history of being um, uh, rewarded handsomely for those negotiations, because we see, you know we see the data speaks to this, um, you know, it's often racialized folks, it's often women and non-binary folks who are are. Um, who don't benefit in those situations. Um, uh, yeah. What conversations, actions, do you feel are central to pay equity? So what I mean by that is we know that pay equity is, um, the framework of it is about equal pay for equal work um, and equal value around compensation. And we know that elements of transparency are, are not often addressed within the, the nonprofit sector. We're seeing um, a move to call for pay transparency um, as part, you know, of not only decent work and equitable pay structures and factors, you know, but I think more importantly, the ways in which it can create avenues for BIPOC folks to um, to ensure that they are getting compensated. So can you speak a little bit to that? For sure. I would say, we, you know, we engaged in, you know, typical, uh, I don't know if it's typical, but a strategic planning process um, and a number of different engagement type, type activities that um, we realized was actually causing us to relook at our values, relook at our mission, vision, um, and those pieces. And you know, that was really important to us. And I think one, one of the things that I feel happens from time to time with charities or nonprofits is that, you know, there are values, um, but they kind of sit on a wall or in grant applications and opportunities aren't seized to live organizational values. So for us, much of our decision making comes back to those things, those key principles. And also our colleagues bring up when they identify that there's a space for us to do better at um, living our values. And that's been really, really helpful. So I would say that for us is kind of the first the first place uh, for us to start. And we, we've spent also a lot of time, we recognize as we work around this issue of food insecurity, that folks typically don't understand what it means, unfortunately. And it's 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 allowed for um, you know a bunch of food based interventions to an issue that's ultimately one of, of poverty and income. So for us, we started really being 
we, we, we became a living wage employer um, because we recognized that, you know, as, an, as a food justice organization, we didn't want to uh, have colleagues that weren't able to afford to access food or that were food insecure. So, you know, initially we introduced um, a tw- uh, uh, the, the, the living wage in the city of Toronto was, is, was, is, sorry, the living wage in the city of Toronto is $22.08. So we actually provide a um, minimum wage, it's $24. So regardless of what anybody does, we start at $24. And again, going back to the piece around living our values, in the context of the pandemic, we have some colleagues that are out um, working, doing food distribution, um, the good food box and other things. So we said, we're not going to increase our impact on the backs of workers that are that are taking more risk. So we introduced uh, a top up. Um, right now, it's a two dollar top up on top of um, what someone's base uh, hourly rate might be. Then we started realizing that there were some discrepancies in pay um, and that it wasn't as transparent as it could be. So we did two things. We looked at the pay grid, um, we committed to making it transparent, but also we looked at those numbers in the pay grid and we made an intentional decision to, you know, we increased the wages of the folks who were paid the least. Um, by 25% um, and then uh, at that point no increases for any of this members of the senior leadership team. So you know I think f- these are some of the ways that pretty early on in our journey um, you know our colleagues, our funders, our supporters really recognize the intentionality um, and we were very honest you know we talked about how in not just the food system, not just in nonprofits, but as a result of white supremacy and patriarchy and all of these wicked organizing principles, that it's often black and brown folks um, who occupy the positions in the the lowest bands in organizations and businesses. So these types of interventions for us were also racial justice interventions and economic justice interventions because the two are tied uh, hand in hand. I talked a little bit about how we don't negotiate salaries, um, you know, because like I said, we don't believe that someone should be compensated more just because society has been designed for them and they've been taught that they should negotiate and all of that, all of that business. A, a couple other things we've done is, and I think a little bit more actually about the context of the pandemic and thinking about how there's, you know, all of this language out there about how we're all in this together. And that that couldn't be further from the truth. We we all know that, you know, and it required us uh, to make sure that we're supporting folks based on the kind of challenges that they were interacting with. So, you know, for every year that the pandemic's been uh, been happening, we have provided childcare days. Uh, most recently, fifteen childcare days, paid days for folks, anyone within the organization who needs to provide care because their their child can't get to school. You know, things like like that have been really, really important for us. Things like we just today, our board voted to increase um, the number of personal days available to all, to all of myself and my colleagues from three to 10. Um, so those sorts of things um, have been really, yeah, have been really important for us. And maybe I'll add just a couple more because they're just popping to me now. 
Um, you know, I work really closely and have such huge appreciation and gratitude for Food Shares, um, the folks that we work alongside who are part of the Indigenous Advisory Circle, mm-hmm. who have helped us along our journey in so many ways, one of which was identifying the opportunity to introduce um, traditional Indigenous practices leave mm. for folks who, who are participating in ceremony and the travel time associated with that. So we, So folks have access to five days. We, we also, um, one thing that I think that just jumped to me also that's really key is that we start benefits on day one. You know, who can afford to be on critical, to need a critical medication and pay for that? I'm an asthmatic and right. I, uh, the medic, one of the medications that I take is upwards of $200. The puffers, a they're month. so expensive. It's, those puffers, mm-hmm. you know, and I can't imagine what it would be like to, you know, be without without my puffer that I need to stay alive. And I think that's the reality for far too many people when we start work and it's become a norm that someone has to wait three months before they have access to something that keeps them alive. You know, that is ludicrous. So all all, all in all, you know, it's really started with for us around carefully defining our values and doing everything we can, seizing opportunities to live our values and to push the sector and beyond to, to be doing similar type of uh, thinking about the, 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 the possibility of doing things differently. Oh my goodness. And Paul, it's amazing. Uh, Yami, can I go off script a little bit you and ask sort of a question that's popping up for me? Yes, yes. So Paul, it sounds like, you know, based on the COVID context, you've sort of been able to, you know, add additional supports and, you know, you're... It seems like it's a more fluid practice for you to look at how to make your organization and how to make your structure more equitable for your staff and to really live your values. So in organizations that, you know, I've been in in the past personally, but just from what I've witnessed in the sector, it doesn't seem so fluid. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like, oh, we can just add days or add supports, you know, Mm -hmm. so for the folks who are listening who maybe don't feel like they have that fluidity in their organization, could you talk a little bit about how to make that possible? You know, if it's convincing your board or, you know, what the process was for you to be able to kind of add as you go and change as you go. And if I could just add to that, Kavita, also around funders. Because often the the, piece that comes back is internally we want to do this, but our funders won't let us or it's not within the scope of our funding. So would love to hear that. Yeah. Great question, Kavita. For sure. Oh, not sure where to start, but you know, uh, the funder piece just uh, (laughs) energized me and I maybe can start there if that's okay. And if I miss anything, which I'm sure I will, please, please um, have me come back. But I think it involves rethinking our relationship with funders, how funders um, uh, far too often dictate our work. And they are just, you know, one of the many inputs that should be valued, including our colleagues. So I think there are times where we actually have to say to funders that um, your funding is inadequate and perhaps do some coalition building around that. 
I think we have this idea that um, funders uh, won't listen. And I think if enough of us are saying, and I found that not to be the case, actually. But I think if you're worried that funders won't listen, it's, you know, building some coalitions um, and and collectively articulating to those funders that, um, you know, your funding process is a problem. And also, I get this kind of question a lot, you know, where do you begin? People hear about some of the things we've done and they say, where do you begin? What do you start mm. with? And maybe uh, I think the most important one key piece has been, and I'm going to come back to others. Hopefully I'm not jumping. No, love much, it. But as a, <laughs> around our board, mm-hmm. um, again, we've got to, ch- I think we've got to ch- change the way organizations think about boards. You know, we are not so interested in having, you know, Bay Street types on our board that are interested in padding their resumes or um, networking. Like, this work is far too important. You know, people don't have access to the food that they need. So it's really important that that work is directed by folks closest to those issues. So one of the most important things, we're less interested, to be honest, if you can read a financial statement when you're expressing interest and join the board. We'll teach you and we'll support you. We will use our resources to build your capacity in that area. But what we're recognizing is what those board members are building, are bringing, is a commitment and um, a commitment to food justice, a commitment to equity, and often lived experience of poverty, food insecurity, or racism. So these questions, when they come up, of increasing personal days, increasing salaries, these sorts of things, it's a no-brainer. So, you know, we can hire. Organizations can hire lawyers. There are pro bono lawyers. You can get all the support that you need. But I I do think we have to challenge this idea a little bit that um, we need a bunch of people with certain uh, connections to other rich folks to be on our boards um, to validate our work or invalidate our work. Um, So that's the thing that's been most important for us, making sure that our recruitment of board members has been, again, centered on our values. And then I would say... You know, like I said, I get this kind of question a lot. What, what, what do you do next? And it's you just start. There's no, there's no fancy recipe. There's no um, playbook. To be quite frank, it's if you're making an organizational commitment to live your values, and your values are centered in things like equity and racial justice and economic justice. Well, then you just get started, and it means that you know maybe you won't become a living wage employer tomorrow or even next year, but you're transparent about what those values are, and you're transparent around a commitment to work towards uh, becoming a living wage employer, and you lay out that timeline so folks can see, and you start having those conversations with funders and saying, you know what? We, we're committing to doing this, and if you're with us, um, this is the increase we're going to need. And, you know, funders, um, I find in my experience, they often respect that, you know, and they respect being told about some of the problems, um, the problematic elements of their their funding calls and the like. So that's where I think is is the most important place to start and to just just go. Start. Yeah. (laughs) Take a step. Exactly. And you'll make mistakes along the way. You know, the important thing is as you're making those mistakes along the way, own them, acknowledge them, apologize, and really prioritize making sure that the mistakes that you're making or your learning, your organizational learning, is not coming at the expense of folks who are already disadvantaged by our systems. So, you know, when you're thinking about a move, having conversations with 
um, you know, folks that are not white men um, about what the impact potentially of this type of intervention might be? So incredibly important. I think just to build upon, um, you know, that question around uh, accountability and, and just starting, right? Mm-hmm. Inviting people to just start mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is organizational practices and cultures often require a level of accountability. And so how do you hold yourselves accountable um, as an organization and and you as a leader? Like what are the mechanisms of accountability um, that exist uh, in this work for you? And I know you've given, definitely given some great suggestions in terms of leaders and leaders in the sectors and how they can hold themselves accountable to this work. But just wanted to, to emphasize that. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I guess uh, one thing, um, yeah, and this is a bit maybe more rudimentary of the other things that I'll speak about, but one thing that's been really important, I think, is there is income inequality that occurs in charities, and it's often unspoken about, at least not in boardrooms, uh, maybe in the lunchroom, but there is great income inequality uh, within nonprofit organizations. And CEOs, EDs, whatever we're called, we go and we'll meet with a board and the board will say, you're doing such great work, we think you should give you a raise, but that happens in a vacuum. And, and, and so we see EDs getting these sorts of raises, but we don't see any other layers of the organization getting a, a commiserate raise. So one of the accountability measures that we've built into policy that's really important is that we have a ratio that connects the, what the lowest paid person makes to what the highest paid person makes. It's one to three. So, you know, so those conversations cannot happen in a vacuum. And I think that's been really important. There are a couple other things, too, that I think, you know, uh, need to be teased out uh, in this. And it's, I, I, I've sat in, I remember being in a, I don't know what it was, a presentation, something on Zoom, like we've all been on. And someone asked the question about engaging community um, and how do we get community buy-in for our work or something like that. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. Why is there such a distinction between staff and community? Why Why aren't the staff that occupy positions within these organizations a a true reflection of the community that they serve? There shouldn't really be that kind of distinction in terms... I think that distinction occurs when we have, you know, well-intentioned middle-class white folks um, recognizing that they are not the racialized people that um, uh, are accessing their programs and services and get into a tizzy about how do we make sure all of these things... Well, actually... One of the best things you can do is break down that distinction, challenge white supremacy within the organization, and ensure that it's folks who are uh, from communities that are being served by the organization or supported or collaborating with the organization are actually accessing paid positions within uh, the organization. So I think that's one. Another that I would say is when you do these things, and we wrestled with this at first because, you you know, we, we... We weren't sure uh, whether or not we should do this, but we've decided that it's really important to be public. Don't do this stuff in secret. This is all a part of accountability, you know, because one of the things that happens is when when you're doing this publicly and making these commitments publicly, 
um, that uh, makes it, you know, we have to withstand the sniff test from our colleagues. Uh, and I'll give you an example without naming any organizations, but, um, you know, the, the, the number of black squares that popped up the summer before last on organizational Instagrams uh, was, uh, wow, you know, it was pretty unbelievable. And the number of people connected to those organizations or businesses that said, wait a minute, um, what are you doing? You, 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 this is a place where I've experienced pretty horrific anti-black racism. Take that black square down. So I think from an accountability perspective, it's really important to be public. And when people criticize um, the work that you're doing, that's an opportunity to learn. That's an opportunity to be better. Um, so I think it's so important that this doesn't happen in secret. Also, you know, the, the, the trajectory of kind of how things work in organizations, I think, can sometimes be problematic. You know, boards boards go off and do these strategic planning processes or a board will, you know, make some key decisions. But, it, but often I find that it's disconnected from the people working in the organization, the people most affected by these policies. Um, so for us... You know, something only comes to the board after it's, and, and when I say, sorry, yeah, something only comes to the board after it's been, you know, we've had conversation and made updates um, based on the feedback we've received from our staff, from stakeholders, from our the Indigenous Advisory Circle, sometimes the Black Caucus, all of these kinds of, it means it takes a little bit longer sometimes, but by the time it's coming to the board, it, it's really hard for the board to say also that, you know, they can't support it because because we have engaged so many experts along the way. Um, and I think that's sometimes unlike the kind of flow of information and policy approval process that typically happens. I just want to reiterate for our listeners what you just said there is that it can take a little bit longer. I think we need to accept mm. that if we're going to do things right and in an equitable, inclusive way, that they might take longer and that's okay. <laughs> that it's important yes. for us to take the time and space to do these things um, as they align best to our values as opposed to always trying to meet a deadline or getting more things done, which seems to be, you know, a very typical uh, attitude in this sector. Absolutely. That is so important. I'm so glad you raised it because... When it's not slow, it's more likely to be performative and it's more likely to cause harm. When organizations make these knee-jerk reactions, they say, oh, 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 we don't have enough black or indigenous people. We need to, you know, let all and of we them. diversify our staff. Or our board or whatever it is. Let's our make board. sure we're hiring um, uh, uh, exclusively black or indigenous folks. Well, I think when you're when you're doing that and making those kind of knee-jerk decisions and not thinking about the culture and the systems that uphold white supremacy, you're actually inviting folks into uh, what what can potentially be a violent and harmful situation. So it's really Absolutely. important to slow down and to engage experts. Uh, um, you know, and when I say experts, I mean people with lived experience of things like poverty, food insecurity, and racism and anti-indigeneity. Absolutely. And if you don't have those experts, take time to build relationships. Mm -hmm. Take time to yes. invite folks into your space. Take time to get to know what matters to them. And mm -hmm. I just, you know, want to echo those pieces around, um, you know, taking time because 
the the urgency, right? The urgency that you talked about with the black squares, Paul, is a byproduct of, of, of white supremacy. It's a byproduct of white urgency. And so how do we, and I'm not talking only about white people here, you know, I'm talking about mm-hmm. systems. And so how do we move mm-hmm. away from that, you know, and engage and, and build relationships that are not transactional? So I love that you touched on that. Um, I know that we could keep going and going. Can I just add one other little piece? Yes, he had one more point before I cut him (laughs) off. It's so (laughs) foundational uh, to challenging white supremacy and the way capitalism uh, impacts our systems. It's the you know. So my compensation is not tied to the size of our budget. Our budget could be two million. It could be two hundred thousand. It could be two hundred million. My compensation doesn't change. And I think that's really important because I think too many organizations and certainly their leaders and boards grew, um, view success as growing the organizational budget mm. or becoming larger. Mm. But if you're, yeah. harm, if you're causing harm um, and you're, you're growing your budget and becoming larger, that's problematic. So I think it's important for folks to recognize that that isn't the work. You know, the work uh, for me is, is about justice. It's not about getting a larger budget or becoming a larger organization. Those things change all the time based on a whole host of external factors. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. I'm like, I'm so hyped. We could keep going. But yeah, I'll let you ask the last question before we, we wrap it up. And thank you so much, Paul, for all that you've shared thus far. Yeah, I I feel like as as a listener, I'd be taking notes and I wish that I could be taking notes right now, (laughs) but at least we'll have the recording to listen to after. Um, So, Paula, you know, it really sounds like at FoodShare, a lot of what you've described is part of the values. And so there didn't necessarily need to be a big cultural shift, you know, towards justice-centered practices at FoodShare, but Mm -hmm. as you've grown in that journey um, as an organization and as you've sort of advanced, uh, you know, racial gender justice within your organization, can you name uh, for us, you know, your three top learning moments at FoodShare? Three, that's dangerous. Love it. This is dangerous. Okay, three. And it has to be like three, just like three main points, not bullet points under each point. Okay, okay. I like the directness of that. I feel like you should be at conferences telling people that before they give their, ask their questions or give their responses or or just following me around and telling me to do that. Um, uh, I guess the first one um, for me personally has been leaning into the lessons that I picked up along my journey from black women, Uh, Mm. black women who practice mutual aid, who really taught me about my commitment to community and what that means. So for me, it's it's been around honoring that. And I work with so many, you, you say, you know, you wish you were taking notes. And the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, the, the opportunities that I've had to take notes in my learning and listening and observing and reflecting on the ways in which many of the black women um, who have been in my life or I've worked alongside have approached leadership. So I would say that is number one for me. I would say also number two. Um, what am I going to say is number two? Uh, you know, it's a really tough number one to follow. <laughs> it is, it is. Uh, I would say you know this this kind of change is often uh, when we talk about what it, you know what it takes to get there. 
it's often the leaders that are in the way, you know. Um, people are already uh, there. Uh, they yeah. just need the organization to be. And I, I think that is, um, you know, people at Foodshare were already there. They just needed the leadership to be. Um, that culture was present. Um, and it was about, you know, for me again, you know, clearing a path to allow these things to happen and to throw our organizational resources behind them and embedding them into our things like mission, vision, values, and that sort of thing. Now, one more. Yes, one more top learning moment, a juicy one for for us to be like, because I think often, you know, um, transparently folks look up to you and think that, oh, my gosh, like Paul has it all together and Paul hasn't made mistakes along the way. Or if he has, like he is really thick skinned. So like he's able to move through this. So I think there's also a humanizing, I think, when it comes to this work that is so necessary. So um, that's my own selfish ask. <laughs> that, that, that sounds like uh, an inspiration for point four, I think. Uh, I, I feel like we've now negotiated and nice I try. only get point four because otherwise I'll just retweet or co-sign what you just said um, and, and highlight the, the, the community of support and the, the leaders around me um, at every level of the organization that support this work. Um, but maybe one thing, maybe there's a little bit more incendiary, um, especially in this sector, you know, we can't be afraid to fire volunteers. You, you know, sometimes there is volunteer misalignment. And I feel like we sometimes don't, volunteers or funders, we sometimes don't move forward because we worry about the volunteer that's been coming in for 30 years to you know, uh, sort tins of, of whatever it is at a local food bank. And, you know, you have to honor that person's right. commitment to the organization. But if they're the person um, that's holding you back from, you know, for, for us, we're embracing kind of justice. And, and, you know, without naming names, you know, we've had people on our board who have actually had to say, you know, I've been volunteering at this organization. I've committed my energies. But you know what I'm recognizing? That... Um, there's a misalignment here. I'm not ready for this. I, I don't buy into this. Right. So I think you have to help those folks. You have to, pay, you know, uh, with respect, uh, help those folks find other opportunities that more match where they're at if they're not able to or willing to um, be where the energy in the organization exists. Um, so I think you, you can't, we, we, we learned that we can't be afraid to say, to volunteers, even senior level volunteers that, you know, I'm not sure if this is the right fit for you. Mm. To really honor like that alignment to your values. It just goes back to our mission and values are such and, you know, where there's misalignment to sort of not clean house, but, you know, to sort of clear the path for you to achieve and advance your mission and values. And it just makes the organization stronger. You know, it, it really does. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what that makes me think about in many ways is, is ancestor Bell Hooks, who reminds us that love is a radical act. And sometimes to love is to leave, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. to love is to find new pathways. And so thank you so, so much uh, for connecting with us on such important issues. I hope that our listeners... Uh, are able to garner something and, and take that first step or take that first movement um, forward or potentially backward uh, mm. within your organization. Mm. Um, as we know, this journey is nonlinear. 
Thank you everyone for listening. Um, again, this is Digging In with ONN. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. We really appreciate you taking time to listen. We're your host, Kavita and Yami. We hope that you'll join us for future episodes as we continue to dig into issues that matter to the nonprofit sector. Make sure you share and subscribe so that you're first to know when new episodes are live. Thank you again, Paul, for joining us. And we hope that you all have a good rest of your day.